Hello and welcome to CAA Conversations. I'm Genevieve de los Santos, Director of Special Pedagogic Projects and Assistant Teaching Professor of Art History at Rutgers University. I'm also a member of CAA's Education Committee and I'm really happy to be bringing part two of a fabulous conversation um, that, that I had with Ashley Corin. Um, we are talking about women's history and ways that we need to um, expand our conversation, ways that we need to um, think more broadly about what teaching women's history is and what like the complications are um, in, in teaching women's history. I will throw to you, Ashley, to give your introduction to our listeners. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I am excited for part two, the Empire Strikes Back version <laughs> of this conversation. Um, once again, I'm Ashley Corin. I am the women's history content and interpretation curator at the National Portrait Gallery and the acting head of education for the Smithsonian's American Women's History Initiative. So this podcast episode, like we said, is a continuation of our earlier conversation where Ashley and I spoke about the ways in which teaching women's history in the arts can really be revitalized with more inclusive lenses um, and it can be implemented in really engaging ways. And for this second part of our dialogue, we wanted to expand this conversation um, into thinking more about additional pedagogical strategies, one that can open up the teaching of women's history to much broader audiences. Um, both I'm thinking in the classroom, um, um, and, in, and in the museum. Um, and also ways that we can, I think we haven't really talked about this yet, but to approach difficult topics um, yes. in supportive spaces and supportive ways. Um, so Ashley, you know, one of the things that I think about in my own teaching is how to develop a sense of community and how to set up an environment where we have like mutual respect and exchange um, between you know, students to students, but students to instructor and instructor to students back, right? Um, it is definitely something that came out of my work as a museum educator. Um, you have to kind of... Um, create a space very quickly where people feel comfortable. They don't know each other. You don't, you don't know them unless it's kind of serial. Um, and so I'm wondering what are some ways that you think about building community and creating spaces of like mutual respect and exchange in the museum setting? Yeah, this is a super hard question, Genevieve. Um, mostly because I think, you know, I've done at this point dozens of programs since March 2020, um, including two immersive, two, actually, no, four weeks of immersive um, programming for K through 12 instructors. And um, I think when you are constantly dealing with a shift of different people coming in and out, um, this makes it, it makes it extremely difficult to create community norms. If you don't know who's coming in, you don't know where they're coming from. Um, and so, you know, at the start of our programs, um, we do try to create a set of community norms. And thankfully, when I'm in spaces where I have enough time, I can co-create them with the participants, right? We can agree upon right. the sort of tone that we um, would like to set. But in most cases, I can't because... I've never met these people before. <laughs> I have no idea yeah. where they're coming from. I don't even know what time zone they're in. Right. Um, and people have different expectations for the Smithsonian, right? Um, particularly now. Um, and so, you know, it's it's been really difficult. It's been really difficult. But, you know, at the start of my programs, you know, I really want to make clear that, you know, this is a space where I recognize they're all coming at this topic from different lenses, 
Um, you know, we all are on different points on our learning journeys and to recognize that. So I make that very clear, right? We're all coming at this from a different place. We all have different experiences, different types of knowledge we're bringing to the table. Um, but, you know, this is still an environment where I, where I require respect, right? Respect for the work that I'm doing, respect for everyone in this room. Disrespect will not be tolerated. I will kick you out. <laughs> like yeah. it's not, I'm not playing. Um, and I will do it with kindness. I will, you know, let you know once, right? Like this is not appropriate. Um, or, you know, to perhaps um, reconsider, right? Or to think a little bit deeply or to sort of question um, sort of what's happening. Um, but, you know, it's really important to have little tolerance for, you know, any of the isms. Like I have no tolerance for blatant homophobia, racism, sexism. Like I, in my space, I have yeah. no tolerance. Um, and to be upfront with that um, at the start. And, you know, there are ways of, and to, and there are ways to call people in, right? That are not harsh, right? Um, and, you know, we just had a, a program the other day where people were making um, comments about one of our Asian sitters that was were borderline, you know, problematic to be, mm -hmm. to be frank. Right. And at one point I just said, you know, we need to, I just said, you know, in the chat box, I said, we need to be very careful and thoughtful about the ways that we are describing this sitter, because there are ways to be incredibly insensitive when talking about race. And, and I think, you know, that really forced me to think about, you know, how important it is to say that upfront at the start of my programs, right. To say, Hey, you know, especially we're talking about sitters of color to just remind folks that, you know, to really think about the stereotypes, particularly in terms of physical appearance um, or perceptions. Because I've been in a couple of programs, Genevieve, where I've had to question folks, you know, okay, so you, you are saying that the sitter, this black woman sitter looks angry. Why do they look angry to you? What makes you say that? Can you go a bit into detail, right? Because I don't want to hear, oh, this person's like this. Well, explain to me, right? Where does that come from? Right. So that it really gets to, you know, it really forces people to think a little more deeply about where these observations are coming from, because I'm not seeing that my other participants right. aren't seeing that. Right. So it's just a matter of creating more of a dialogue in these spaces, but to also, you know, be more upfront and say, you know, there are certain stereotypes when we're talking about certain individuals and I need y'all to not do that. <laughs> I need y'all yeah, yeah. to, to, to not talk about someone's nose or their eyes um, because it's not, it's, first of all, you're not all, not all people of a particular race look the same, right? Um, and it's important to recognize that. Um, and also it's, it's we, I want you to go beyond the, the superficial, right? We wanna go beyond the superficial. I'm asking you what it is that you see. I want you to talk about everything. Right. I want you to talk about like I'm more interested in the pose, the facial expression. I'm less interested in right someone's nose unless it's like a really important part of of the painting. Right. I want you I want folks to really go deep um, right. and to think um, be a little bit more imaginative um, when they're sharing their observations. That that's so hard. And I think so many yeah. of us. Um, confront this in the in the classroom as well um and so there's two kind of two things I'm thinking about in, in hearing yeah. your response Ashley one is this like 
saying you need to set community norms like right yes. at the start right now for museum educators that's incredibly challenging because you have like yeah. a few minutes right I'm thinking you know when I was on the floor right I'm like okay we gotta do this quickly <laughs> and like, yes. everybody needs yes. to feel comfortable right and so then there's a real risk too when someone is making an observation like that what is that saying to other members of the exactly. group as well right I mean of course yes it's offensive and there's no tolerance for this stuff but also what is it doing to your community that you're trying to build so that you could all learn together yep. Right. Um, so, so one piece that I kind of want us to maybe explore um, is, well, how do we set those community norms? Like, what do we do? Yeah. You know, and so part of it, I think, as you said, like is saying, here's no tolerance. There's no tolerance for this. Right. Like these are the things that like they don't fly. They're offensive. We can't do them. Right. I'm just saying that at the outset and I think that at, at the outset of the semester, if you're thinking yes. in the classroom, like. Um, I know many people are thinking about crafting syllabus statements, um, yes. inclusive syllabus statements, um, statements um, about diversity and equity in your classes. Like I am very pro these kinds of statements. I think they set the tone. Um, and I, I think about how you have to then reinforce that when you physically come into class or you hop onto Zoom, right? Like you have to, yes. you have to walk the walk too, and you have to kind of, um, kind of set this up. And then one of the things um, that I do in my classroom, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts about it, is I actually, to use your word too, I, I do some co-creating, which I think is also a great pedagogical yeah. strategy. Um, and I co-create my classroom norms with my students. So yes. I will, um, you know, what I ended up doing this past spring, um, based on my experience of that horrible first COVID half in person and then abruptly online semester where I started polling my students a lot more, like, what do you need? What do you have access to? What do you not have access to? What can I do? Um, and so I just started class on the first day and I said, you know, what, how do you define a community? Um, yes. And we did it online and it generated a word cloud. I used a, I used a tool called Top Hat, but there are many ways that one could do this. And then I, I projected the word cloud and I had the students talk about that word cloud live, like, you know, yeah. what was coming up. And then I had additional questions that were like, what do you need from me to yeah. support your learning? Right. And I got like amazing feedback, like such specific points. Like I need frequent reminders. Like yeah. I need to feel supported in a breakout room. I need, like, I will do this every time I teach without fail. Um, and one of the reasons why this is kind of leading me to the second point I wanted to raise yeah. from what you were saying um, is that for me, it, it helps to create a classroom environment where we could delve into difficult content and difficult topics. Right? Exactly. So if we kind of like come back to um, teaching women's history and off the bat as an art historian, I'm thinking of Artemisia and I'm thinking about, yeah. OK, what am I going to do? How do I approach teaching Artemisia? Do I want to. Um, you know, dive in and talk about her sexual assault and talk about the case yeah. and, and then create this narrative. How do I, how could this be affecting my students, right? And of course, it's not limited to Artemisia. There's any large number of topics over the course of teaching women's history yeah. um, that, that present similar challenges, right? So I think, you know, for me, one of the things I'm thinking about is how building community up front proactively exactly. can assist in doing that. But I'm wondering if maybe we can like hone in on like how do yeah. how do we tackle the particularly challenging historical like narratives yeah. um, both in the classroom and in the museum and how do we support our visitors and our students from not potentially being you know triggered by this or exactly also exactly. Prevent 
instances where they're saying offensive things and triggering their peers. Exactly. Because that's another thing that could happen. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing I did want to, what I talked about a little bit, which is something I want to go into is, um, you know, uh, right. Learning how, when someone says something or when someone does something, learning how to respond with a question, right. Rather than, um, like I said, I mentioned earlier, you know, what makes you say that, or could you go a bit into detail? Um, right. So figuring out strategies in the classroom to be able to respond gently, um, to if, you know, someone does, does sort of say something. So that's one thing. Um, Genevieve, and this is something that we work with, particularly with our docents, right? Because in the museum, they're, I mean, they're on the floor, right? They're dealing with folks from all over the world who are coming, right? So there's all sorts of um, opportunities for either miscommunication um, or maybe um, uh, for, um, for the potential um, for things to get said, which may be seen as inappropriate. Right. And so we always talk about sort of how do you respond in those particular situations sort of on the floor. And a lot of it is about directing or telling someone, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, I wish I did, but I can't, you know, go into this or, you know, just being upfront and saying, you know, we're going to talk about this right now. We're not going to talk right. about that. Like, this is what we're talking about. Um, but I also think, you know, a part of it, if you're in a classroom setting, you know, I always love to also ask folks, what are you interested in learning? Like, what are you interested in learning more about, right? What brought you to this subject? And for me, that gives me a little bit of an idea of like, what possible boundaries there are, because if I know ahead of time, right, if I'm in a classroom, and I know that a bunch of students right, have a little bit of information about Artemisia, but they're familiar with a little bit of her backstory, right, like that might be an opportunity to sort of talk about this issue. But if I am of the understanding that they know nothing, absolutely nothing about Artemisia, then I might want to go into it sort of very gently. Um, you know, it's so difficult to yeah. talk about this because when we don't want to make it an essential part of, of a particular woman's experience, right? Like we don't want to make it the most important. I mean, it could be, but like when we're teaching art history, when we're teaching, we want it, it's it's hard to not center, right? Um, this this thing. Um, but like you mentioned, um, we also don't want to re-traumatize folks that are in the classroom um, or traumatize folks um, in the, the classroom. And so I think, you know, it also helps to have balance, right? So in addition to talking about this one thing to sort of balance out um, with other depictions, other stories. Um, but like I said, to sort of show the full picture if you can, right? right. Like to show the full picture, to say, you know, this is a real, you know, this is a part of someone's experience, but like, it's also to also make it clear that it is very problematic for us to only look at this person through this particular lens, right? Because they did all these other things that are really important and really interesting. Um, and to center this particular experience is problematic. It's, there's nothing wrong with talking about it, um, but to focus solely on or to make it a big part of this person's life, regardless of whether it was or not, if we're teaching someone, um, I think is, is, you know, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm, I'm speaking in circles, right? 
right now. Um, no, it's something it's, I'm still no, struggling no. with. No, you're not. And it's, 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 it's very challenging because the way that I'm thinking about it is there's risks on both sides. There's just going yep. all sides, right? Like yep. there's a risk in not mentioning yep. the, these difficult topics, right? For an, a number of risks, right? One, we want our students and our, our, our general public, we want people to know, right? About yeah. women's history and issues yeah. and complications and difficulties, right? We haven't even really gotten yet to talking more broadly about gender and sexuality and how yep. like, I mean, politically fraud all we want to engage in these things right um and so the risk in not engaging with these things i think is higher right I personally agree. I agree. personally those are my politics right um yeah. however there's a there's a risk in doing that right and not just a, and i'm thinking now more about a classroom setting right not just a risk of like a student getting really mad at me or like getting a bad evaluation which again i don't want to like downplay those things because we're all in different positions yeah. and i think a lot about you know continue faculty. So I don't want to downplay the risks, yes. the risks involved there. And I, I understand. Um, but, you know, I, I guess where I'm going with this is how does this come back to our previous conversation from part one about exceptionalism, right? So the yeah. danger that we have by, by centering and focusing on one thing and not telling the fullest story we can, right? Of course, yeah. it's not always possible. Um, I, I think it, it gets like kind of sucked up into this larger exactly. issue of exceptionalism then, right? Like, Artemisia is great because she paints works that, um, you know, conform to our art historical canon, right? Um, but also she's a survivor and this is another narrative of like overcoming barriers. And, and so, okay, great. Yes, it is. But we should also talk a bit more broadly, right? About what were women artists going, what, what, what did it mean to be a, a woman painting in, right, the 17th century? And so I, I think we need to, um, you know, we need to, we need to broaden this dialogue. So I, I think we're on the same page. I agree with you. It's so tricky. Um, and I think, um, you know, to, to kind of anchor this in, in women's history, like vitally important that we, yeah. we take these risks. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I really want to do a lot more work in really learning about trauma-informed teaching, Genevieve, um, particularly when it comes to the subject. I mean, it's 2021. If I'm teaching women's history, I have to address Me Too, right? Like I have, yeah. like, there's no way that at any point we're not going to address Me Too. And so I feel, you know, responsibility to get more involved in learning about trauma-informed teaching and trauma-informed approaches, right? And a big part of it we already talked about, right? being transparent upfront about what it is that you're going to be teaching. So people know it's not a surprise, right? So it's not right. a surprise when you get to that moment in your workshop or your lecture or right. Like people know it's coming, um, creating a space of safety, which we've also talked about, right. With these community norms, letting people know that like, you don't have, like, if I tell people all the time, if you can't handle this, totally okay. It's yeah. okay for you to not be here. It's, it's totally fine. There's nothing for me. There is nothing wrong with not wanting to be present for a certain conversation. There is nothing wrong with that, right? Taking care of yourself is more important to me. You being able to take care of yourself in this particular moment is way more important to me than anything else. Right. Absolutely. And as a, as a teacher, you're not going to get an F like, I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to give you a bad grade because you made the decision to take care of yourself. That's, I don't do that. <laughs> that's, that's not no, my approach to, I agree to completely. teaching. And I, I think, you know, there, there are always options. This is something yes. that, you know, again, I, I don't want to downplay the extra work, the labor involved in coming yes. up with options. I want to make yep. that clear. Um, but, you know, if, if a student 
in my class is telling me that they really can't be present for a certain discussion or this this potential topic. Like I can find them an alternate reading. Like I can assign them a quick reflection paper or something. Like there's always yep. an option. There's always an option. And again, I understand scalability. I understand time constraints, but um, you know, the stakes are high when mm-hmm. we're talking about trauma. And I've thought a lot about trauma and foreign pedagogy. And I mean, the last the pandemic, we're, we're all affected. Yes. Like, like trauma-informed pedagogy yes. is just across the board. I want to keep us like anchored in, in, in teaching women's history, but also just the moment that we're in right now, people yes. are entering into these conversations with like this huge batch of cognitive load. Like there's all this other stuff that they're bringing into this equation, never mind individual traumas that we, we might not ever be aware of, nor should we, right? Yeah. Um, so so I hear you and it's really challenging. And I'm, I'm sure that many listeners are, are thinking yeah. about this and, as well. Yeah, and just one thing also I wanted to add, which is the, which I which to me is the most important, but also the hardest can be really hard for an instructor, but like you have to create a space where students feel comfortable calling you out respectfully if um, there is something that's happening. And right, we talked about that part of it is creating a community of trust um, at the start, making sure that your students' voices feel like your students feel like they can use their voices um, respectfully to be able to express certain things, right? If something does not feel okay, um, or if they don't understand why something is being taught um, or need clarification. And so I think it's really also important to be able to receive um, feedback in that moment, in these moments too, as well. And to, and to make that clear that you were there to receive any kind of feedback, particularly when we're talking about, um, you know, these, these subjects in the classroom. That's so important. And I would even say too, it, it might seem a little bit like silly to tell, to, to set this up at the beginning to say like, here's what we do if we make a mistake. But I think it's yes. vital. It's vital, you know, to give the students that language because, or, and the museum visitors, this language, they're, they're in a vulnerable position, right? Like they're, yes. they're not the, the educators. They're not the people who have um, this, this background. And so in order to take a leap and feel comfortable, um, you need to give them some language and some support so that exactly. they can actually, you know, recover if they do misspeak or they do take a misstep. Exactly. And, and you have to set the example as the instructor, right? I tell folks all the time, you want people to be vulnerable. You want them to use your voices. You got to do it too. You know, like it takes, you have to set the example, you know, you can't, create this amazing program or curriculum that's fabulous and talks about intersectionality and all these isms. If you're not putting yourself out there in the same way, you can't expect your students to be able to give you what you're not giving them. You want your students to be real, you need to be real, right? Yeah. None of what we do is neutral. We are not neutral educators. It's not possible to be a neutral educator. So just, you know, be upfront and, and let people know who you are and, and, and you'll get it back. I, I promise you. So. Definitely. Well, I have kind of a, a different question if you don't mind pivoting a little bit. Sure. Um, and this is maybe, um, maybe unfair. It's a little co- a classroom question, <laughs> but I want your, your thoughts. And I think, I think some listeners are probably in a similar space. So one of the things that I'm thinking about in my class right now is 
what kind of assignments I want to employ. And I want to go yeah. here because we were, ta- I was just kind of talking about um, options, right. And how there are always options, right. If a student, um, you know, re- really can't engage with, with a difficult topic for whatever reason, right? But there's also so many options that we could be thinking about in terms of the assignments. Um, I'm really interested in alternatives to traditional exams, traditional papers. um, And I really like the idea of encouraging students to work both collaboratively, to explore different modalities, um, modalities that like, as we all know, um, now can increase their digital literacy. We've all increased our digital literacy now. Um, And then I think also potentially increase their understanding of various artistic media, which is something I'm really interested in too. Like, why can't my students make things? Um, So for in my class, I'm thinking about replacing, um, you know, a traditional kind of final exam with an option where they can make an object if they want. Um, and so, or they could, you know, produce a, a kind of digital piece, like creating a, a database of, of women artists. Um, I'm still playing with this loosely formed idea. Um, but yeah. I, you know, part of me thinks about how um, assignment structures and, and these kind of alternative um, assessment modalities is related to women's history. Like it kind of makes yeah. me go back to the uh, yeah. one when we're thinking about um, these outlets for amazing artistic production and and creativity and imagination and like are there ways that we could think about that in the actual structure of our class the actual way that that we engage um people in learning about this and so I was wondering if you have any um thoughts about this as um an expert in this material and also if there's anything that the museum's done in kind of a similar vein yeah so I'll talk first about my own practice as an instructor and then uh as an undergraduate graduate instructor and then I'll talk about sort of what we're doing in the museum um first of all I love this question um I love good (laughs) yeah I was so excited I was like yes this is this is this is my moment um but you know as a former graduate undergraduate um instructor so just, I'm going to be honest with you, Genevieve, I hate research papers. I hate giving <laughs> research papers and exams. I hate grading research papers and exams. Like I detest it. So I've always been a big fan of choice, right? If, um, if my students, my former students wanted to do something creative, I always gave them the choice of writing a research paper or doing something on the lines of a lightning talk. I love being able mm. to give students, particularly students that are at the graduate level who will most likely will be going to conferences or, you know, do, it, to me, a lightning talk in a lot of ways is also an elevator, can be an elevator pitch for folks. So for me to create options that are useful for the future, not just for my class, but to create options that you can use after you've graduated, right? So I love the idea of um, a lightning talk um, because, you know, really teaches students to be able to be succinct in five to seven minutes, right? You have this subject. Yes, you could write a a lovely research paper, but I'm going to hate reading it. So please feel free to do this lightning talk. Um, And for me, they, they did such an awesome job. When I gave that assignment, the students, they rocked it, right? Because they could talk about any subject they wanted. They could go right into the exact thing that attracted them to the subject through this lightning talk. Um, And I think it really taught them, like I said, to be able to talk to anybody, right? About a particular subject, right? In five to seven minutes, which I think is just absolutely fabulous, right? And 
you could use points from your lightning talk to create an abstract for an article later. So it's like, like I said, I love creating content that can be used, reused and recycled um, in the future. So that's sort of my experience. Um, and then of course, you know, one of my other experiences was um, asking folks to create um, lesson plans. I love asking students to create lesson plans and teaching collections. So for one of my assignments, um, was to create a lesson plan um, based on a particular subject, right? I had them create um, learning objectives, an outline, um, an activity for the classroom session and a teaching collection um, to use. Because I'm like, that's useful, right? Yeah. Like, especially when you're applying for jobs, you can say, like, I actually have experience. Like, did you teach in the classroom? No, but you have experience building content to use in the classroom, Um and so that's my experience as, uh, you know, an instructor, but, you know, in the museum, I work for a really cool place and I have some really kick-ass colleagues. Um, and, you know, last year, one of, one of the examples that I thought was fabulous was, so the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum created this um, design and mini exhibit using objects in your home, which I thought was fan. Fantastic. I mean, how wonderful is it to be able to get the curatorial experience, right, by using the stuff that you already have, right, to create a conversation, to develop a narrative, right? One of my favorites um, was one of the folks at the Cooper Hewitt created one based on um, regretful purchases that they had made during the pandemic. <laughs> so That's it was just amazing. like... <laughs> So just like all the stuff that they bought and granted, like, but it was like a really interesting conversation about consumerism, Mine be right? So embarrassed. <laughs> Mine too. Listen, I have a bike that's just been hanging out in my yeah. house. Um, but uh, but I think you know, but like it's we can be creative. We don't have to, you know, you can use the stuff that you already have to create really interesting dialogue about what's happening to you in that current moment, what's happening to other people in that current moment, right? Like I said, I love the idea about past purchases because it's about consumerism. It's about the way that we respond to, you know, global crisis, crisis, you know, how, how you respond to what's happening in the world. And I think that, you know, and you can be creative, right? Like I did one where I, um, I submitted one where I just found all the objects in our home, in my home that had flowers, um, wow. on it, um, to sort of talk about, like, how do I be- beautify my space when I'm stuck in my home? right? All day long, right? Like, how do I create beauty in my space? And so I love this. And you know, you could take it a step further, right? It doesn't have to be a photograph of objects. You could do performance, right? You could do, what are you growing outside, right? What's happening around you? you create animation. You can do a collage. You can think about all the senses, smell, everything, right? And so I really love that idea because you're really getting folks to think about the things that are really interesting to them. Um, anyway, so I love that idea. Um, one of the things that could be really interesting is um, for the classroom is, so the, Smiths- so the National Portrait Gallery has this triennial, um, it's called the Outland Whichever um, Portrait Competition. And what could be really interesting is maybe trying to recreate that in um, a classroom space. Now we have a different version of that uh, at the portrait gallery of a teen competition where our teen advisory council, um, votes on the objects that are submitted, which I think is super awesome. And I would, I think that could be really, you'd have to sort of rework it, but I think that could be really interesting to sort of create a space, 
um, where folks are submitting their own art materials, being judged by their peers, um, and then having that work be displayed digitally in, in some way. I think that can be super duper cool. Um, and one idea that I've been playing around with Genevieve is um, exhibit reviews. Mm-hmm. So getting students to engage in something that's happening locally or, um, or a digital exhibit. Um, and granted, we have to be a little careful, right? Going outside, going to indoor spaces. Um, but I think, you know, especially with, with women in arts, women in art class, right? Their exhibits happening all the time. It might be down the street. It could be in a museum. It could be in a historical society, right? It could be a local gallery. But I think it could be super fun um, for students to take the theories and the information that they've learned during the semester and to apply that by evaluating someone else's work in 2021, right? Or, or looking at a retrospective of a, of a woman artist today and to really sort of think about um, the things that they've been wrestling with over the semester and then putting those to words by taking in someone else's, someone else's work. So those are just sort of my ideas. I love that. I'll share with you that um, this past spring, I was teaching the second half of the art history survey, the introductory okay. survey. And so I couldn't bear to give my, in, in the semester before, the students really had a hard time with an online uh, format final. Like they had, yeah. they struggled with the timing. Like it would just, I couldn't do it. So I assigned them Fred Wilson's project, the, the essay on mining the museum. And oh, I had yes. them do yes. an exhibition review, but I had them kind of like do a Fred Wilson, like I'm like mind these spaces. And so I think there's ways that you could kind of like flip the exhibition review so that it's not like, you know, attend the exhibition and like, tell me what you see. Um, But like, here's someone who actually did something super critical. And so I actually had students come up with um, interventions that are like, like Fred Wilson style. Um, and some of them did amazing things and they and they really focused on gender a lot too, which was interesting for the survey, which I think says a lot about me and my teaching yeah. of the survey. Um, you know, but they even got to, um, you know, they were looking at the Mets collection. They were looking at, some of them were looking at textiles and, and thinking oh, wow. about textile production and like also it really got there. And that wasn't even, that wasn't even really a big part of the class. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think that these um, alternative modalities are, they stick with students and I'll share yeah. too, It'd be hilarious if, if my professor is listening to this by any chance, but when <laughs> I was an undergrad, I had um, an assignment of creating a syllabus and it was like the best assignment I ever had because I had to go through and it was an upper level class. And okay. instead of, instead of a research paper, it was like, come up with how you would teach this and like yeah. actually try and wrap your head around like what the topic should be. And it was the hardest assignment I think I had in four years. It stuck with me to this day. Yeah. And another assignment where I had to like design a Baroque um, allegorical ceiling we could do, you know, I ended up, <laughs> Love yeah, that. I, I, there, there's so much that we can do. Um, and I think that I'm with you. The traditional research, well, the traditional research paper, I think, has its place, right? It does. It does. But and and I don't want to say that it's not important, but I think that it's one of many things that is important. And yeah. I think my goal in a class where most of these students are not going to be majors is to get them to have like deep and thoughtful engagement with works of art and to understand the historical context in deep ways that relate to their present, right? So I love these ideas. I love the idea of like a portrait competition. Students get into anything that's competitive. I do um, a meme competition for extra credit in my class and I do a tableau vivant um, 
competition as well. And those are extra credit and they just, they just love it. So hopefully um, for listeners, there's a lot of different ideas here that I think, you know, can really um, enliven the course. And, you know, what strikes me too, is that how these kinds of assignments, they give the students or they give participants like so much agency here, right? It's not this like, typical kind of like top down, like I'm assessing you based on these like very, you know, well, you should always be transparent and clear in how you're assessing your students, even if it's a tradition, even if it's not a traditional kind of format. Um, but there is so much agency here, right? Students get to really kind of flex their creativity. They get to have increased ownership here, right? Um, and it brings me back to, again, like co-creating as a pedagogical strategy. Um, it's difficult for instructors to do because you have to give up some space and you have to make room for so many different voices. It becomes, I think, a really rich kind of um, dialogue, but it is a trickier one to kind of manage. And it leads me to thinking about ways uh, that we need to think about inclusivity more broadly um, when we are really discussing any kind of gendered history. Um, yeah. And, you know, we haven't really gotten there in our conversation yet. I think it's an important uh, point that we should turn to now. Like, how are you thinking about broadening the conversation around women's history to include dis- discussions of gender and sexuality across mm-hmm. the spectrum. Like this is, this is crucially important. Um, I, I know you're, you're thinking about I it. Know. Um, and so I'd love to hear, you know, ways that we could, we could broaden this and to be as inclusive as possible when we talk about women's history. Yeah. Um, I think this is, this is another really hard question for me to answer because, you know, my job is to use the collections that are available to me, right? But with the recognition that those collections have a huge gap yes. <laughs> in them, right? So that's really, it, it can be really difficult sometimes. I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm not, I know I'm not the only person who feels that way, right? Um, when like I have access to this amazing collection and collections right across the Smithsonian, but there are also gaps in the historical record right? Especially when we're talking about sexuality, the history of sexuality in the United States. Um, And so that is, that sometimes makes it difficult because I sometimes feel very limited in what what I can address and what I cannot address. And it's something that the Smithsonian is definitely working on, um, but it's hard, right? To make up um, for decades and decades of history. It takes a long time to do that, but it does make my job a challenge sometimes, right? When I just just want to talk about black lesbians in Oakland in the 1980s, like I just, and there's nothing, you know, like there's not enough there, right? Um, but I think, you know, and but that's when, right, that's when that co-creativity and that's when those partnerships, those community partnerships really come into play. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've had some really great experiences in the past, um, particularly, you know, one of the examples I have is when I um, worked at the University of Maryland College Park and my former boss, shout out to Laura, um, created a pop-up museum in the, in the archive and special collections. And the theme was around activism and we invited folks to bring in their objects, their posters, their buttons, their t-shirts. Um, everything in between their flyers. And we had this really dynamic experience where you don't know what people are going to bring, right? To the pop-up museum. You have no idea, right? Um, But it ended up being this really transformative experience where 
students and faculty felt energized by the ability to donate objects for this temporary exhibit um, to share their voices, to share their experiences, to share their knowledge, right, of a particular subject. So I love doing things like that where we invite people to share, um, invite people to bring something um, that we don't have, um, to be able to help us tell broader stories. Um, so that's one. Um, you know, I know that in the past, different units have worked with community artists to create murals, which I think are fabulous. Um, I love the idea of creating content in a particular space for people to enjoy. They don't have to come to the museum, right? You don't have to travel to DC, right? You could enjoy these things in your neighborhoods, in your own spaces with the artists from that particular community. So I love the idea of using content in that way, using content that exists outside of the museum um, while empowering you know, other artists to sort of broaden what it is that we can address. Um, and I think you know, this is a really interesting one for us too, is sort of dealing with um, oral history and performance. Mm, um, yeah. because those are not traditional modes of what you necessarily would see in a particularly in a portraiture a space that's dedicated to portraiture but I think they could be really interesting um, because they are portraits I mean in oral history is, it's just you can't sometimes you can't see the person but it is a portrait of someone's experience um, and along with performance I know that we have a perform we have performance series um, at the National Portrait Gallery um, which has been very successful um, in terms of really responding to um, these gaps in our collection, creating a more immersive experience um, in that way, so. Thank you, and you know, one of the things as you're talking, it's making me think about is the power that public programs can have here too. Like yes. the way you're thinking about, um, you know, bringing in the community and, and partnership. And I kind of want to return to that point, but I before before I do, um, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, how is the museum or how are you thinking about like the power that public programs can bring to address yeah. these gaps? Because yes, you have the reality of the collection. You are working with the collection, right? And sometimes yeah. I think about like, you know, in the classroom, I have a bit more freedom, but it's one of the reasons I'm not employing like a textbook for my class. Like I want, yeah. I want that freedom, right? So when we, when we have something like that, we, we do have to work within um, those parameters, but you know, these, these amazing collaborations that you outlined above, I'm wondering, you know, are there ways that you're thinking about bringing in the public um, mm -hmm. or, or creating kind of programs to address um, some, of, some of these gaps? Yeah, so I actually have two examples um, of work that I've done um, at the Smithsonian. Um, and one I mentioned earlier that, you know, I um, co-managed, co-facilitated a book club with the DC Public Library called Art Afterwards. Um, and uh, last year, actually, no, sorry. So last year we did this really amazing program where we focused on um, uh, objects of both Lorraine Hansberry and Malcolm X. And we, the book that we read was Black Feminism by Mickey Kendall. We actually had the privilege of having Mickey Kendall be with us, mm -hmm. um, sort of talk about Black feminism. But we had a conversation about the erasure of Black women in the civil rights movement, the erasure of Black women in, um, in this conversation, we're talking about the emergence of Black power, right? The fact that, you know, a lot of times, women like Lorraine Hansberry were pretty much, we knew that she was doing the work, but she wasn't the face, right? 
she wasn't the mouthpiece of these movements, right? A lot of it was sort of taken on um, by these male figures. And so we had a really interesting conversation about how do we deal with, with that, right? The erasure of these women who were instrumental right, in this work, and, and particularly in the case of Lorraine Hansberry, someone who is queer, right, like, so, you know, how do we deal with the fact that, you know, we do know that there are Black queer women that were very instrumental um, and very important sort of talking about the history of Black liberation, um, but they continuously get overshadowed by these male figures, so, like, that is a really great way to sort of really combine prose and history um, and portraiture, to be able to have a conversation um, about, you know, something that for me is really important, right? So talking about the erasure of, of um, LGBTQ plus um, women of color um, and the struggle for, for liberation globally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then recently I'm so, one of the things I'm most proud of is um, I worked on a Smithsonian project called um, Women You Might Not Know in History. Um, and this is actually an animation series. It's a series of eight to 10 videos um, that focus on women that necessarily are not in our collection. So these are sort of entryway videos to women from the 19th century up until the present. Um, women who you know, may not ever be in a museum. And one of my favorite videos was of Ruby Duncan, who was an activist in Las Vegas, who was very influential in expanding welfare rights for women um, in Las Vegas. And that's a really, I mean, it, to others, it is a very controversial subject, right? This idea of welfare. Um, but I love that you're providing this platform, right? Particularly through these sort of bite-sized chunks. So it's not overwhelming folks with information, right. but it's giving you a taste, right? Of these women's stories and the impact that they made. Um, and so I really love the idea of developing digital content like that for the public um, that you can incorporate in your classroom, right? You can send a link to a friend, right? To be able to share this information um, with folks who may not know anything about, you know, Native Hawaiian women, right? Like who may not know anything about the history of public health in New York City's Chinatown. Um, And so I love the idea of creating content or being part of projects for the public like that, um, which provide these sort of glimpses into women's history and and inspires people to learn more, right? Once you watch that five minute video, you want to go on Wikipedia and try to figure out, you know, who this person is and, you know, why have I never heard of them before in my life, you know? And so I love, you know, working on projects like that um, while we're inspiring people to take the next step intellectually. And I can tell you that these resources do help instructors. Like, yeah. you know, and I, think that, I think that one of the things that I think is humbling about this, and I love the way that you're framing this also pro, like so proactively, like, okay, like there are gaps, but we don't just like own that, you know, or just kind of, or, or not even necessarily own it, rather we do own it. We don't just kind of yes. ignore it. And then exactly. And then kind of say, okay, well, we don't have that material instead. Like we can proactively make different kinds of resources exactly. to create different Precisely. spaces. Right. Um, and, exactly. and address the gaps because the gaps tell us a lot, right. About, yeah. about history. Right. Um, and I think, you know, in, in teaching too, it's a humbling experience to be like, okay, well, I want this to be like as inclusive as possible, but I have have 14 weeks I have like 28 class meetings yep. I have like this much a reading I can like rationally assign them right and I have my limited knowledge right um yep. I try to continuously keep up to date with things but you know 
reaching out to other things or kind of, you know, having things be asynchronous for those of us who are teaching face-to-face, like you can, you can assign these video materials. You can, you can fill gaps in different ways in different spaces in the way that you structure your class. And then also like supplement what, what you can bring as, as the educator. Right. Um, so I love that. And I, I think that, um, Oh no, I'm sorry. Sorry. I just want to quickly add, you know, and that's, and that's why it's so important for me. I rely so much on other institutions. I rely on the Library of Congress. I rely on the National Archive. I rely on different historical societies. I rely on different Black institutions, right? Like I rely on so many different places to give me the information that I need because I know that I'm not gonna be able to find it in one place. That's not how information works. <laughs> like it's not, it's, not, <laughs> yeah. it's not how information works. Like you have to dip. But you know, one thing I also wanted to add Genevieve is how important it is for me to be transparent at the front. There are people, we get people all the time who are like, well, why don't you have this? Or why don't you have that? And it's like, girl, I know, like, I I'm with you. I'm just as mad (laughs) as you are. Right. There are people who are mad, but like, I think it's really important to be transparent with folks. Like I know that we don't have this and I am just as upset as you are, but we're going to make the most of this experience. Right. We can only do so much in so little time. There's going to be stuff that's going to be missed out. And I'm sorry, you can be mad at me. I know it hurts, um, but we're doing the best that we can right yeah. now. Um, yeah. But it doesn't end here. It does not end with this class or this workshop or this program, right? Like the conversation continues, right? Like it's up to not just me, your instructor, but it's also up to you to continue that conversation too as well, you know? I couldn't say it better. I mean, what an incredible opportunity, right? Like, so to say like, yes, like this is frustrating. I am angry as well, but like, I I think particularly to my students, like go ahead, like study this, continue, right? Like, like address this, you know? Um, And I, I think that that's a, that's, that's a really great place to kind of end our conversation, (laughs) you know, and to think about like the potential that we have in, in, um, teaching women's history um, and the kind of difficult work that we need to do to increase the inclusivity. It's, it's not, yeah. it's, it doesn't end here. We have a lot of work to do. And so do, you know, the next generations and students and the people exactly. that we can inspire. So Ashley, thank you so much for um, dedicating so much time for these two fabulous conversations. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Same. Um, it was awesome. And, yes, it was wonderful. And I learned so, 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 so much. I did too. This was fabulous, uh, Genevieve. So thank you. Thank you.